I'm sure you have, but I'll still ask the question. Have you ever been part of an awkward conversation? I hear some chuckling, so I think you have then. Think to that. A conversation so awkward that on one side you were just trying to get out of it in any way possible. Or you were trying to end it. You were trying to communicate something to somebody and they just weren't getting it. And that was making it awkward. I'm trying to explain this in the most simple terms I can or be as clear as I can, whatever, but you're not getting it. And it's very awkward for me. Or you could have been on the receiving end of that. I hear you saying words, but they make no sense to me. Um, And it's very awkward for me to listen to. But specifically, have you ever been in a conversation that was awkward because you were accountable for something that you weren't able to fulfill? And you were trying to get out of it in any way, shape, or form that you could. Usually, the human nature will revert to a series of excuses to get out of a conversation like that, to stall for time, uh, to, to distract, uh, so I can get it done and then come back to you and report that everything's like it's supposed to be and then the awkward conversation's over. So this morning, we're going to talk about excuses and specifically a conversation, what started out as a very awkward conversation uh, that Christ had with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. But there's a few things unique about this conversation. Uh, first off, that yes, it does start out very awkward, and she's on the receiving end of that. And she's trying to get out of that conversation any way, shape, or form that she can, while Christ continues to graciously but accurately communicate to her. But by the end of that conversation, by the end of that interaction, something else that's interesting is that a significant number, a significant population of the village or the town that she was from came to faith in Christ as a result of that what started out as a very awkward conversation. Uh, so let's ask God's uh, blessing and direction on our morning as we study this and go forward. So Father, we're grateful for our time to gather together this morning. Uh, we're grateful for these songs that have directed our hearts and directed our minds uh, to your eternal truth. We ask now for a focus um, and a calming of our hearts and minds around John chapter 4 this morning, uh, that this interaction be cri- between Christ and the Samaritan woman would serve to teach and instruct us that as we see you and understand you more, uh, others can see you and understand you more because of our lives and our response to your word. Uh, So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have not already heard or you you, you read ahead or peeked ahead, we're in John chapter 4 this morning, continuing the series through the Gospel of John where we learn as maturing followers of Christ here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, we're working through the series in John, uh, through the Gospel of John, to then, as maturing followers, to know who it is we're following and where it is we're, where it is he's leading. So we get to observe this conversation uh, here in John chapter four um, as an example. Um, what what sets John apart from the other three Gospels is that compa- in, in comparison, um, John's Gospel is the Gospel of of um, private interaction, the most personal interaction that Christ had. Uh, There's a series of those that are much more recorded in the Gospel of John than they are in the other Gospels. But as we see, uh, the author John had written at the end of his book, these things are written. Much more could have been written, but these things are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life, eternal life in his name. So that is the end result of many from this conversation we'll look at in chapter 4. Uh, They saw Christ, 
They believed in Christ and then have eternal life in His name. One benefit that we get to have, looking at chapter 4, um, that she did not, it's kind of a series of benefits, but we get to see it in the context of John chapter 1, 2, and 3. So we get that. So the, the, the sessions that we've already had these last few weeks, she was not privy to. We get a benefit looking at it now today that she didn't. Because the Samaritan woman was not there to hear John the baptizer, his public proclamation in chapter 1, where he introduced Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She wasn't there for that. She wasn't in Galilee when Philip told Nathanael that he'd found the, of him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This Samaritan woman in chapter 4 did not have an invitation to the wedding in Cana in chapter 2. She didn't toast with the wine where we know that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And she certainly, as a Samaritan, was not in Jerusalem when after Christ cleared the temple of pragmatism and convenience, he challenged the Pharisees regarding his, his physical body that if you destroy this temple or when you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. I will raise it up. Nor did the Samaritan woman accompany Nicodemus to visit Christ in chapter 3 and learn that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Nor was she in Judea when again John the baptizer taught his disciples that whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We get to look at chapter 4 in the context of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the other interaction Christ had, and the other interaction others, John and his disciples, had about Christ. But the Samaritan woman was just about to meet Christ for the first time. So what makes this conversation so awkward? Because she didn't have that background. Because she didn't come to it with the same eyes that we get to come to it. She had a totally different perspective of who Christ was. The stranger there at the well. So part of what makes her conversation awkward is she doesn't have the context we just reviewed and that we've been working through these last several weeks. Instead, because she didn't have that background, because she didn't have faith, the Samaritan woman, we'll see this play out, but the Samaritan woman was trapped in the trivial. She was trapped in trivial things, but through the process of the conversation, through the process of that awkwardness, especially at the beginning, but through the process of Christ revealing himself to her, she comes to faith, and he teaches her to focus on the eternal. So the conversation starts when she, the Samaritan woman, is trapped in the trivial. But through the progress of his revelation of himself to her, Christ teaches her to focus on the eternal. And we'll watch her grow through that. We'll watch her transition from physical, temporal things, trivial things, so to speak, but to a focus that leads her and several of, of uh, her town, her village, to have an eternal perspective of Christ. So let's dive into John chapter 4, verse 1, and watch this whole thing play out. So John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus learned, this is awkward phrasing, so stay with it. We'll paraphrase it here in a minute. Chapter 1, 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it sets the stage, or the, kind of the context of what is going on and where this is happening. And it starts out with a little bit of drama. Here's a bit of the paraphrase. And then there's some more drama to follow, so stay with it. But it starts with some, it, it leads us, leads out, this chapter 4 leads out with some tension between Christ and the Pharisees. Other than the Roman Empire, the Pharisees were the dominating cultural influence um, in and around Jerusalem in the countryside. So when Jesus knew that the Pharisees knew that Jesus had more disciples than John. So when Jesus knew that the Pharisees knew that Jesus knew. That's kind of how it starts. And that's kind of the, 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 the foundation for that is what Andy led us with last week. When John's disciples came to John and said, do you realize Christ now has more disciples than you do? And John was able to say, absolutely, and that's exactly how it should be. John got it and taught his disciples that, that the whole idea of our ministry, the whole, John is saying the whole idea of my teaching is to prepare for Christ. And there he is. So he should have the disciples and not me. But the Pharisees weren't quite there yet. The Pharisees didn't get it. So when the Pharisees saw John as a rabbi, as a teacher, gaining a following, growing in the number, the population that's following him, it doesn't give us a lot of indication at this stage yet that they were troubled by that here in John. However, when this Christ, this no-name person, comes on the scene and suddenly has a greater following than John does, now the Pharisees are getting a little nervous. Especially after, in chapter 3, Christ had challenged the Pharisees through Nicodemus with their ignorance of the law, with their ignorance of the Old Testament. With, the, with their ignorance, the primary, you know, the Ph.D. level scholars, religious scholars of their day, Christ in chapter 3 challenged them through Nicodemus and called them out on their ignorance. said, you should know this already. You should be able to connect the dots. And you haven't. So not only has John, Jesus called them out on their ignorance, he now has more followers than John did. So when Jesus knew that the Pharisees knew that Jesus knew he had more disciples than John is where we start. Christ decides to, to leave. He's going to leave the area and go back north to Galilee. Kind of get out of the way, let things cool down a little bit. And he wasn't just escaping, but he had a divine appointment. But there was some more to that, that backstory, and that tension between Christ and the uh, uh, Pharisees. Because okay? John, in chapter 1, had publicly testified to the Messiahship of Christ. And this is where we get to see all the string and, and connect together. Not just a series of random things in chapter 1, and then other things in chapter 2, and then this time with Nicodemus in chapter 3 at night, but a series of connected and related events all moving us to what John the author says, teaches us that we can believe in Christ, and by believing, have life in his name. So in chapter 1, John the Baptist publicly testifies to the Messiahship of Christ. In chapter 2, Christ went to the temple in Jerusalem during celebration of the Passover and made quite a public scene by calling them out on what the, the level uh, that they had allowed that to stoop to. Sacrifice was necessary, so the animals for the sacrifice were necessary. And people coming from all over the known world to make their sacrifice needed currency exchange, absolutely. But they were doing it in the wrong time and the wrong place. And Christ resets that and clarifies the holiness of the temple. Okay, but he did it in a very public, in a very, very open, in a very challenging way. Not normally the way to win friends and influence people. Not like normally politicians do. 
So they were still hurting and smarting from that, challenged by that. Then I just referred to it, the the conversation chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And then again, after that conversation, John the baptizer again publicly proclaims the Messiahship of Christ. So here we are in chapter 4, and the Pharisees are feeling this a little bit. They're feeling growing resentment to, to Christ and his teaching. Another layer to that drama here early stage of chapter 4, is it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. At that time and in that culture, no self-respecting and responsible Jewish adult would go through Samaria. They'd take the long way to the east and go up to Judea, from Jerusalem to Galilee, rather, from the Judean countryside up north. While going through Samaria was the most direct route, it was the most culturally unacceptable route. And it says Christ had to pass through Samaria. So the Samaritans were the descendants of the intermarriage that happened between the nation of Israel and the, um, that were part of the northern captivity during their uh, time in captivity, uh, the Syrians with the, um, Assyria, the, the uh, northern tribes with Assyria. So the Samaritans were the descendants of that cultural, religious intermarriage that took place uh, during the time of God's judgment on Israel. When they were told, don't intermarry, but they did. So now we have the Samaritans, and that was the cultural. um, So the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as having rejected the law and the Old Testament. The Samaritans agreed with the first five books of the Jewish Old Testament, what we would call the Pentateuch, but it stopped there. So the continuing history of Israel, they rejected So the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along on several levels, culturally, socially, politically, spiritually. And yet here in verse 4, it says Christ had to go through Samaria, which is not something you did in those days. We'll see something else play out, but spiritually, religiously, I'm not Gerizim, is where the Samaritans initiated their location, their primary location for worship. And the Jews had that at the temple in Jerusalem. So on so many levels, there was tension um, and hatred and animosity between the two groups. Dare I say, more so than the Missouri-Kansas border war that we see today, that that can be quite um, uh, intense and lead to some awkward conversations of their own. So a lot of tension, culturally, politically, socially, spiritually, but we'll come back into John chapter 4 here. So in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Hold on to that, tuck that away, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who who it is that has saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this is where the concept of the title, the subject we're talking about, excuses, comes in today. So we'll see this play out. The Samaritan woman hid behind a series of excuses in her interaction, in her awkward conversation with Christ. But as he then graciously and lovingly and accurately confronts her with the reality of her spiritual condition. So excuse number one. You might want to write this down. It'll be on the test later. Excuse number one is cultural. Verse nine. If I were to summarize it or to paraphrase it, what right do you have to talk to me? This conversation is culturally, socially, politically incorrect on so many levels that we shouldn't even be having it. See, the woman from, verse 7, the woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the, verse 9, the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, and it's, it's kind of an accusatory question. It's not, how can this happen? It's an accusing, accusatory question. She's like, let me get this straight. Why are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan woman, to give you some water? So there's a bit of that cultural animosity coming out on her own. He just asked for a drink of water. He's obviously, she can obviously see, because we'll see this next, he has nothing to draw water with. She can see that. So she knows, here's this guy, middle of the day, six hours, noon, by their calendar, by their clock. Middle of the day, he's there. Apparently, he's an outsider. He's traveling through. She can tell that. So of course he's thirsty. That shouldn't be hard for anybody to figure out. Here's a traveler here in the middle of the day at the well. He needs water, and he's asked a simple question. She accuses him, why are you asking me? The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was so great that they would not share tools. They would not share implements. So why would Jesus even want water that came from a Samaritan person's well, a Samaritan's jug, something like that? This is crazy on so many levels, and she's like, wait a minute. Who are you, and what are you doing? Why are you here? Almost to the point of back off and mind your own business. She leads with this cultural excuse. Her second excuse is practical. She leads with a cultural excuse, and he doesn't respond. Then she jumps right into layer two. Her second excuse is practical in verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So her second excuse is practical. And it's basically, how could you have anything to offer me? Because he has no tools from which to draw the water. See, she said, why are you even asking me? And he said, his response to her is, if you realized who you were talking to, you'd ask for a drink from him. She just totally bypasses that, doesn't doesn't ask for clarification, just jumps right into, well, if you've got something to offer, how could you? Because you don't even have any way to get the water out of the well. So she just jumps right to this practical, I don't see this working. I don't see how this could take place. You talk to something about leaving water, whatever, but not even possible. She's stuck on the trivial. She's stuck in the practical. I don't see how this could happen. You have no way in which to offer me anything. I don't need you. It's kind of the bottom line summary of that response back back that she gives, that second excuse. So as we see him continue to respond to her, verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well, will be thirsty again. In verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water 
that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here we get to her third excuse. Her third excuse is at the physical level. Her response, the woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again or have to come here to draw water. The third barrier, the third excuse she gives is a physical one. I'm in as long as it's convenient and fulfilling. Okay, I'm buying. Let's, let's talk a little bit as long. Here are my conditions, though. Is it convenient for me, and is it fulfilling for me? I want to be satisfied. Now she's in. Now she's interested at the physical level. She was looking for physical fulfillment. I don't want to be thirsty. She was also then looking and interested in physical convenience. I don't want to have to work anymore. As long as it meets those standards, I'm good with it. Where do I sign? I want to be fulfilled, and I don't want convenience. I don't want to have to work anymore. But what did she miss in Christ's responses? Let's look back to verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, because it will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So she totally missed these three concepts. Verse 10, the gift of God. Also in verse 10, the concept of living water. And then in verse 14, eternal life. She totally missed those. In this awkward conversation where she doesn't even want to have it to begin with, And she's put up now, what, three barriers, three excuses, cultural, practical, and physical. These three excuses, these three barriers or walls she's put up trying to end this conversation. She's totally missed it, where he's referenced the gift of God and living water and eternal life. Why? Because she's trapped in trivial things. But Christ doesn't leave her there. Christ doesn't leave her hanging at that stage. But he does switch gears a little bit. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, For you have had, past tense, five husbands, and the one you now have, present tense, is not your husband. So what you've said is true. Talk about awkward. Okay, just took it up a notch. Go call your husband. And she says, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. Okay, her fourth excuse Excuse number four is relational. In verse 17, in a humorous way, summarize that. She's responding back. She says, yeah, about my husband, about that. I'm told I have commitment issues. Okay, my relationship status is kind of complicated. Okay, she's been married five times, now living with man number six. So what we can see, she was just talking about fulfillment and convenience. We don't know the status of those first five husbands. Was that death? Is that divorce? Culturally, at this point, in this stage, she would not have been able to initiate those things. Well, the death, maybe. She would not have been able to initiate the divorce. Okay, so it's probably nothing that she got in and got out of. We don't know the reason. That's not told to us. Um, What happened to the first five husbands? However, a couple clues. The fact that she's living with man number six and they're not married. She is coming to the well in the middle of the day by herself 
which is not the normal time the women would come in the morning before the heat of the day to get the water for the day. So why is she coming by herself at the worst time for that kind of physical labor? Lead us to conclude that probably she was not the most respected person in her town. But we're filling in the gaps there. and We're trying to connect some clues. But what we do know, she had been married five times. She's living with the sixth man. So she tries to regain control of this very awkward conversation. Now, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she jumps right through that. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Her fifth excuse is spiritual. Technically a religious one, but spiritual rhyme, so I left it in. Excuse number five is a spiritual one. Verse 19, ah, you're a prophet. Let me ask you a controversial question that will distract you from my true condition. I don't like where this current conversation is going, so I'm going to introduce something else to the conversation and try to get away from this. Try to steer it away from me and, and into a controversial or maybe an obscure topic to reroute this conversation because I don't like where it's going. But Jesus isn't buying it. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, where the temple is, will you worship the Father. That's a groundbreaking statement to both the Samaritan and Jewish religious cultures. There's going to be a time when it's not here, where the Samaritans think it is, or it's not in Jerusalem, where the Jews know it is, and God has promised an eternal kingdom. There's a time coming that it's not going to happen there, at either place. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know, the Samaritans. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So after those, that series of profound revelations, there's going to be a time, not Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, are you going to worship? The time is coming, and the time is now here. See, these are some clues Christ is laying out. After having talked about the gift of God and eternal life. So she does, at the, at the response to that, what any normal, rational human being is going to do. She tries another excuse. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Her sixth excuse is a chronological excuse. Verse 25, I'll deal with this when the Messiah eventually comes. She punts down the road. We'll deal with this later. Okay, I can't, I can't contradict you. I can't challenge that. I don't even understand what you're saying. I'm going to push this off till later. I'll deal with it later. I'm not comfortable with this conversation, so I'm going to name drop the Messiah and see if that shuts you up. In his response, in one simple statement, when we break it down, he responds to her and says, I am. The one who's speaking to you, I am. And he reveals himself to her. And at this poignant moment, where the clouds have opened and the light has shone down, and she has been led through uh, the series of Christ's gracious moving around each of these six barriers to her spiritual condition. There she is with Christ, 
who has just said, I am, and has revealed himself to be the Messiah, Peter and the rest of the disciples come back with lunch. Right in the middle of this. Now we've gone from quiet and poignant, and then in comes Peter with a big mouth. Okay, I want to think about, he's, he showed up with a bag full of fish tacos and veggie burgers on unleavened bread. And he comes to him, verse 27, just then his disciples come back. Could they have had worse timing? They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to her, what do you seek? Can we help you? Or to him, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away in the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So in that time, when she leaves her water pot, goes back into town and, and makes this statement to the town and says, I believe I've just met the Christ. So I've, I believe, I've met somebody who's told me everything I ever did. All that from him saying, yeah, I know you're not married. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. That's all that's recorded. And she goes back to the town and says, I met somebody who's told me everything I have ever done. That is how, how much her mind has been blown by this conversation. And this interaction as Christ has revealed himself to her. So the time it takes her to go back into town, make that statement in some way, and then the town people are coming out to follow, to meet this Christ. Christ then, while that's going on, we pause for a commercial break, and he transitions his time to the disciples. Begins focus teaching on them. And we're going to see that she, the Samaritan woman, was not the only one who was trapped in trivial matters and needed a recalibrating to focus on the eternal. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Come on, your, your food's getting cold. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So his disciples said to one another, they never asked him, his disciples said to one another, has anything brought him something to eat? Did he order out? Did a food truck come through? What's the deal here? They never asked her, can we help you? They never asked him, what's going on with this conversation? They just said, why is he talking to her? Rabbi, eat. I have food to eat that you don't know about. So instead of asking him, instead of going to Christ and saying, would you clarify this? Where did you get some food? I'm sorry it took us so long, whatever. They start mumbling, you know, grumbling, mumbling about themselves. Did anybody bring him something to eat? Verse 34, Christ said to him, my food, my, said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower, the planter, and the reaper, the harvester, may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So oversimplified, kind of summarized. Here are some of the concepts. Now Christ has just taught his disciples and us indirectly. He taught them. We're reading it here in the book of John. Okay, there's a bigger purpose to life and ministry. There's a bigger purpose than meeting people's physical needs. And there certainly are physical needs that need to be met. So there's a bigger purpose to life and ministry than meeting people's physical needs. The second one, lesson to the disciples and lesson to us. Look beyond the obvious 
and see the real needs around you. Look beyond the obvious and see the real needs around you. Number three, God has been setting the stage for redemption for some time. You've been looking forward to this. God has been preparing for this already. God has been setting the stage for redemption for some time. And then number four, to them, to us. Ministry is a team effort, and it's time to get off the bench. Ministry is a team effort, and it's time to get off the bench. Christ brought them into work that was already being done. So verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that he ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And in verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Her testimony originally, her confrontation, would start with such an awkward conversation that she tried six times very desperately to get out of, has resulted in this herself and this village saying, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It's a perfect example of why the book of John was written. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, through that personal confrontation with Christ, between Christ and the Samaritan woman, and then many from her community, because of that confrontation, because of her testimony back to the community, because of their willingness to come and follow and see Christ, they broke free from the trivial and began to focus on the eternal. See, how did they do that? Initially, by hearing the woman's testimony and coming to see, but primarily in their testimony is that they saw Christ for who He is, not for who they wanted Him to be. Christ revealed Himself to be the chosen, the sent, the satisfying, the worthy of worship, provider of eternal life that can break through all excuses and break down all barriers. See, again, those things are written that we may believe and that by believing we may have life in His name. That's why this episode, this, this uh, scenario, this example of Christ's interaction with the Samaritan woman is recorded. Her, we see her belief. We, we see that, that village's belief. So we can benefit from this example, we can benefit from this illustration of Christ's personal interaction so we can move beyond trivial and focus on eternal things. Samaritan woman was a typical person, somebody that we have been ourselves or perhaps are, somebody that we come in contact with every day at home, at work, at school, whatever our sphere of influence is. Okay, remember that Christ never takes the bait when we make excuses. So we're going to transition here in a moment, but just before we do, I want to kind of give a couple questions for us to think about in the context of this, this story, this, this uh, conversation between Christ and the Samaritan woman. How do we, now this can be how do we appropriate it for ourselves, yes, but also how can we present the truth of the gospel to those who are only looking for physical satisfaction? They're looking for comfort and they're looking for convenience. We contrast, here's the answer, we contrast the temporary with the eternal. We see that play out in verses 13 and 14 here from John chapter 4. How do we present the truth of the gospel for those looking or only interested in physical satisfaction? We contrast the temporary with the eternal. The second one, 
How do we present the truth? How do we receive the truth of the gospel? If we're looking for emotional satisfaction, we contrast feelings and truth. In verse 26, Christ revealed himself to be the one who can provide true and lasting relief to quench the thirst. And number three, how do we present the truth? Or how do we experience the truth of the gospel? If all we're interested in is religious satisfaction, we get stuck on questions about location or style or procedure, things like this. Questions about timing and sequence. The response is that we contrast eternal life on God's terms. We contrast worship on God's terms, not our terms. See, Christ identified himself as God's provision for spiritual satisfaction, verse 26. Not the routine, not the location, not the obscure questions, is it A or B? So we can, as Liberty Hills Bible Church, still be trapped in the trivial. But let's take John chapter 4 and bridge to begin to focus on the eternal.